You're listening to the Politics Theory Other podcast. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Adam Schatz. We spoke about Adam's new book, Writers and Missionaries, Essays on the Radical Imagination. We talked about why Adam, though a huge admirer of Edward Said and his classic work Orientalism, feels that some of the work subsequently inspired by Said has failed to give a well-rounded picture of Middle Eastern societies in all of their complexity. We also talked about why Adam thinks that there can be value in reading reactionary writers whose politics we might abhor, and why nuance and complexity are not the enemies of radical political commitment. Finally, we discussed the ways in which early experiences of trauma can be the starting point for creativity. Adam Schatz is the US editor of the London Review of Books and a contributor to the New York Times magazine, the New York Review of Books, and the New Yorker, amongst other publications. His next book, publishing in 2024, is The Rebels Clinic, The Revolutionary Lives of Franz Fanon. So Adam, the title of the book comes from the Trinidad-born British novelist V.S. Naipaul, who once remarked to you during an interview you did with him that you could be a writer or you could be a missionary, but you couldn't be both. And although that's not a statement that you straightforwardly agree with, and Naipaul is not someone you have a great deal of sympathy for when it comes to his politics, you nonetheless describe in the book how that comment spoke to your growing exasperation with a certain style of polemical writing that we might associate with certain campaigning journalists. You mentioned Robert Fisk in the book. John Pilger was another name that sprang to my mind. Can you talk a bit about where this exasperation with the polemical came from? how your own writing diverged from that kind of idiom over time, and why you've been increasingly drawn to writers, such as those you discuss in the book, who have a certain kind of artistic sensibility, even if they're still trying to make a political argument and to advance particular political causes? Uh, That's a great question. First of all, you're right that while I'm not in sympathy with with V.S. Naipaul's uh, politics, I have a tremendous admiration for his sentences. I mean, I, I think he's a, he's an utterly um, mesmerizing writer, and and there are very few writers who who use repetition and the passive voice in the way that he does to create atmosphere uh, and emotion. And I so I feel that I I owe a lot to him, even though I find his politics often in his late years reprehensible. Now. I should say too that Naipaul was not uh, particularly consistent uh, when he remarked that one had to choose to be a writer or or a missionary because if anyone was a missionary, it was V.S. Naipaul on the subject of Islam, which was the topic of of our conversation. It was it was just after September 11, and Naipaul was essentially arguing that that he, unlike his critics, had a clear-eyed view of Islam and although he didn't come out and say that um that there's no no dividing line between Islam and Islamism or between Islamic piety and radical Islam in politics he was clearly hinting at that and implying that um those who put forward a more subtle and nuanced understanding of Islam scholars like Clifford Geertz for example or innumerable scholars from the region were simply engaging in missionary work they were covering up the nature of the religion and uh, the lack of an Islamic reformation and so forth and et cetera, et cetera. So the comments still hit me, not because I felt that way about, about Islam. I didn't then and I, and I don't now. 
It's just that I returned to that comment when I began traveling to the Middle East and North Africa. And these these visits began after uh, September 11, actually. I had been involved in uh, activism around the politics of the Middle East and also Latin America when I was a teenager and when I was in my 20s, certainly, at uh, university. I was at Columbia during the uh, first uh, Iraq War. Well, technically, the, the second Iraq War, not the Iran-Iraq War, but the Persian Gulf War, the campaign to expel Iraqi troops from uh, from Kuwait. So I was involved in anti-war activism then. I was also involved in activism around the uh, Israel's occupation in the West Bank, uh, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. But, you know, I, I hadn't actually spent time in the region. And by a curious set of circumstances, in the late 1990s, I became increasingly interested in the history of Algeria, especially the French colonization of Algeria and Algeria's War of Independence, and began to to write a bit about it. Again, I hadn't been to Algeria, but I had this passion, and that partly grew out of my interest in France and in French culture. It partly grew out of my longstanding interest in issues of race and colonialism. And it partly grew out of events in the news, because in the late 90s, the French were finally getting around to describing the French-Algerian war as a war, rather than as the events, rather than as a campaign of pacification rather than a whole set of euphemisms that the French government had used to describe that war. Uh, Um, Yes, I think um, UK listeners will be familiar with some of that language, especially regarding Northern Ireland and uh, the so-called troubles and so on. Of course. No, of course. It's, it's, it's typical of so many colonial campaigns. This is not a war. This is just a police action. And the people we're facing are just outlaws. They're bandits. They're not rebels with legitimate nationalist causes. We've heard that from so many occupying powers, the Israelis too, of course. And so, you know, the French-Algerian war, well, at the time, there were also these testimonies from people who had been tortured during the war, particularly a an Algerian woman named Louisette Iguilariz, who gave a very moving interview in Le Monde. And then this one-eyed general in his 80s who came forward and said that uh, he had uh, presided over a series of extrajudicial executions during the Battle of Algiers, murders that had been dressed up to look like uh, suicides. His name was General Paul Osares. And I was just fascinated by the history, by the resurgence of memory, and also by some of the uh, parallels between French-Algerian history and that of Israel-Palestine. Obviously, there were uh, many differences too, but there were also some arresting parallels. Now, so then I started to travel. You know, I, I was in, I went to Lebanon, I was in Palestine, I was in Algeria. Eventually, I made my way to Syria, to Egypt. And in the course of some of these travels, it's not so much that my political convictions uh, changed or that my sense of ethical imperatives, the urgency around certain human rights questions, notably the um, oppression of Palestinians by Israel's matrix of control and what we now understand to be apartheid, but rather that I became interested in these societies and in the people I met and became aware of a vast set of complexities and nuances that were seldom articulated 
in the kind of journalism that I had been reading and that, you know, to be fair, had taught me a, a great deal. I mean, I learned a lot from Noam Chomsky. I learned a lot from Robert Fisk's Pity the Nation and from David Hurst's book on Israel-Palestine. I have a debt to that work, and I'm not about to repudiate the work. But there was a richness to the lived experience that was not of interest to these writers. They were mostly interested in issues of naming crimes, in justice, in geopolitics, all subjects of interest to me. And yet, somehow the work felt a little bit cramped after I spent time moving around, talking to people, and having conversations that surprised me, that challenged me. And so I'd always been a passionate reader. I'd always been a cinephile and someone who read um, fiction. And I found myself increasingly drawn to writers and artists who, in many cases, may have held very engagé positions, may have been very much a part of the, of the political left, of radical movements. And yet they also saw things and described things that I couldn't have found in some of the work that I've been reading. And so my interests began to gravitate in a, in a different direction. Presumably some of the resistance to nuance and complexity that one sometimes sees on the left is to do with the fact that opponents of social justice have often made appeals to nuance to encourage a kind of political quietism through trying to get the public to believe that a given political situation is just so complicated and contested that it would be a mistake to take a very definite position or to make an intervention. And I suppose an obvious case of that would be the sort of both-sidism that defenders of Israel make use of. And so perhaps for that reason, people on the left often have quite good grounds to be somewhat suspicious of those arguing that we need to be more nuanced or, or detached in our analysis. But for you, you don't see any reason to cede those values to the political centre. No, I actually agree with you, Alex. I think, that's a, a, I think that is a very astute point. I very much agree with it. And I mean, I think a, a perfect example is the use of the adjective intractable. The Israel-Palestine conflict is intractable, cannot be solved. It's much more complicated than you imagine. And yes, of course, it is complicated. But there are also things that are not so complicated. I mean, we have a situation in which one people is dominating another people, confiscating their land, making them miserable, in many cases, pressuring them to leave, seeking, in, in essence, what Baruch Kimmerling called uh, politicide, their annihilation as a sovereign political entity. These things, in my view, are real. But it does not mean that you can't at the same time conduct a complex and nuanced analysis of why it is that the conflict is so difficult to resolve. Now, granted, I've just used a word that some would, would contest, and, and, fair, and rightly so, the use of the word conflict. The argument would be, this is not a conflict, this is a situation of colonization and apartheid. I happen to agree with that. I think that's true. But in a more neutral sense, it is a conflict, because it's a conflict between two parties, which are entirely, of course, asymmetrical in power. And so to conduct such an analysis, you have to look for example, even though it may be painful to do so, you have to look not simply at Israel's 
various strategies to keep down, to dominate the Palestinian population, and at the same time to maintain the world's consent, or at least quietism as it goes about its business, you also have to look at why it is that the Palestinian movement has found it so difficult to overcome fragmentation, internal class divides, and a whole set of other obstacles that, while certainly exacerbated by the Israelis, often very cunningly, are also real. Did you see what I'm saying? And this is not blaming the victim at all. It's not blaming the victim. It is identifying problems that are internal to movements, even among the colonized and the oppressed. You're not, I mean, in no way are you saying they're to blame. They deserve it in no way. You're simply pointing out that one of the reasons that liberation has not arrived is that the nationalist movement has been in crisis and has not found a way to overcome its internal divisions and to achieve a unified vision and moreover to exploit the fractures in international conscience, to exploit the fact that today more than ever there is an awareness that what Israel is doing is unconscionable, right? I mean, we see this, for example, in the fractures in the Democratic Party in the United States. Today, we have people like Bernie Sanders and Rashida Tlaib, you know, who are articulating finally sensible views on Israel-Palestine. Why has the Palestinian movement not been able to make more of that? When I say this, now granted, I mean, I'm, it's not my, you know, role to lay out a strategy. I'm a Jewish American lefty. I'm, I'm not a Palestinian. That is for Palestinians to do. My point really, Alex, is that we can be radical and nuanced and complex at the same time. It's not, it's not a binary. I'm often reminded of what Susan Sontag said after 9-11. Let's by all means be radical, but let's not be stupid. And I think that when we, you know, when we put forward analyses that suggest that enormous problems can be resolved by sleight of hand or simply if the aggressor stops committing aggression, we're kidding ourselves. That's not serious thinking. But I think you're, you know, you're, you're absolutely right in underlining that the fetishization of complexity and nuance can lend itself to a quietist politics or to a defeatism. It's true. It can. I don't think it has to. The left-leaning writers I've always admired always found space for that kind of complex thinking. I mean, even, even in his most rhetorical or, or strident writings, Edward Said would always include these very elegant dialectical moves, you know, where you would feel the presence of a mind thinking through difficult problems. And to me, that's like the music of good thinking and good writing. And, you know, that's what I, what I gravitate towards. And I do think that, um, I mean, that's so much a part of the radical tradition too. I mean, who was, who, I mean, Alex, I mean, to take the most obvious example, who was the greatest champion, the greatest uh, celebrant 
of capitalism in modern times. I mean, it was Karl Marx. So the fourth chapter of the book is your essay on Edward Said, which we might come back to. But in the last chapter, titled Writers or Missionaries, you also discuss Said's work there, and you write regarding the proliferation of anti-Orientalist work that emerged following the publication of Said's major work, his 1978 book Orientalism, that, enormously liberating when it was developed, the critique of Orientalism has often resulted in a set of taboos and restrictions that inhibit critical thinking. They preemptively tell us to stop noticing things that are right under our noses, particularly the profound cleavages in Middle Eastern societies, struggles over class and sect, the place of religion in politics, the relationship between men and women, struggles that are only partly related to their confrontation with the West and with Israel. And you go on to write that anti-Orientalism will continue to provide a set of critical tools and a moral compass so long as it is understood as a point of departure, not a destination. Like all old maps, it has begun to yellow it no longer quite describes the region. Can you talk a bit about how you think anti-Orientalism can actually inhibit critical thinking and also how Said himself came to feel rather ambivalent about some of the scholarship he inspired? Well, I mean, I, mean, I think that, that you know, Said's book, you know, which was you know, published in just before the Iranian Revolution, you know, uh, was a watershed in thinking about the relationship between the West and so-called um, Eastern societies. And of course, you know, central to his argument, and Said was you know, very much influenced by uh, Foucault at the time, was that the East is, is not so much a, a reality or even a specific geography. It's a kind of discursive formation. It's a region of the mind for the West, and that Orientalist discourse has been the West's way of, as Said would have put it, using a very Foucauldian language, of producing the East, the better to control and dominate it. His argument was that Orientalism was crucial to the exercise of, of Western power in the region. And of course, this, you know, this book had an electrifying effect but you know at the same time you know as i as i point out in the essay on edward said whom you know as i should emphasize i admire tremendously and who you know was a, a key figure for me at the time a syrian philosopher sadiq al-azam published quite a probing critique of the book and was among a number of scholars from from the region um, many of them marxists who worried that said's book would lend itself to a kind of um, all-encompassing and corrosive attack on uh, Western knowledge um, and culture, and that it would be embraced by religious conservatives, by Islamists. And in fact, that actually did happen to some extent. You know, Orientalism was embraced by some of those people with whom Said had nothing in common. I mean, Said was a declared uh, secularist. Now, interestingly, in the Western Academy, Said's secularism has been targeted by some of those who have styled themselves as his heirs and as the you know true descendants of an anti-Orientalist critique. So Said has, as in any revolution, the father has been devoured by the children. Now, and I think that Said was also increasingly aware that some of the discourse 
academic discourse inspired by Orientalism had become convoluted, had become identitarian in a way that um, he utterly rejected. But he was in a, a difficult position because, for one thing, Said was rather thin-skinned, just personally. There were reasons for that. They may well have been rooted in the family that he came from. And I mean, there's certainly grounds for thinking that his relations with his father in particular weighed very heavily on him and also with a mother who was alternately very loving and very withholding. So he, you know, and I realize this is armchair psychology, but it's clear he was rather thin-skinned. And at the same time, he was very much threatened by pro-Israel forces in the States. And in at least one case, was a target of an attack. I think it was a, a letter bomb uh, by the Jewish Defense League. So... And not to mention the fact that, you know, there were often articles in the press. Uh, I remember a notorious piece in New York Magazine casting him as uh, Arafat's man in uh, New York or the professor of terror or what have you. So Saeed had reasons to feel besieged, to feel uh, to feel vulnerable. I think. And he attracted a degree of enmity from within the Palestinian community as well, right? I would say that he certainly had, I think that there was some contention in Lebanon. There were definite arguments among Palestinians about Saeed's views on, for example, the use of violence. I mean, Saeed felt that this was just playing, that, I mean, he didn't reject violent resistance at all, but but he, I think he believed that an emphasis on armed struggle really played into the hands of the Israelis because you know, there was no way that the Palestinians could do more than to advertise their cause via violence. Violence could was not likely to, to accomplish strategic ends because of the enormous disparity in force. But I think on, on the whole, in the States, he was beloved among Palestinians. I mean, he was, um, I mean, he was really... Um, uh, such an eloquent spokesman and um, and such a an elegant and charming man as well. But because he felt so besieged, he had a tendency to surround himself with supporters and, in some cases, acolytes. And so he, you know, he had, he had inspired this this movement, not just the critique of Orientalism, but also the whole post colonial studies movement. And so it's understandable why he was loath to directly criticize some of the some of the interpretations and misuses of his work. And yet, if you read some of his later essays, it's clear that he had reservations. And I know that, that he expressed them more vocally to people in his circles. On that point about the way in which Orientalism was criticised for, you know, even if this was not Said's intention and, and, and might have been more true of some of the people working in the anti-Orientalist area who came after him, but that criticism that indeed suggested that Orientalism was in some ways giving comfort to religious conservatism in the Middle East. Do you see something like the fact that, say, during the 2006 Israel-Lebanon war, it was not uncommon to see people on the Western left, fairly straightforwardly in some cases, cheerleading for Hezbollah and, and sort of glossing over the politics of the organisation and the social conservatism and so on. And that's, you know, we can sort of understand why it's, it, you know, Hezbollah had every right to defend Lebanese territory from, from Israel and, and, and so on. But nonetheless, it did seem as if proper analysis of Hezbollah was kind of going by the wayside with that. And subsequently, some of those people who, who could be described as cheerleading were, were pretty confounded when Hezbollah subsequently fought alongside the Assad regime in the Syrian civil war. Do you think that some of the work that came out of Orientalism could indeed sort of buttress that tendency 
to view any force opposed to Israel and the West, whether that's Iran, uh, Hezbollah or, or, or Russia even, as more benign than might really be the case. I'm reluctant to put that at, at Saeed's door. But what I will say is that I would make a different set of observations about that response because I remember it well and because I was not untouched by it myself. I mean, I went to Lebanon. I've been there before, but I, I went there in, uh, sometime in 2004 to do a report about Hezbollah. It was a two-part series in the New York Review of Books. And in the course of that trip, I was able to talk to a number of figures in Hezbollah, parliamentarians, people in uh, military people in the South, people in working in uh, Hezbollah-run NGOs, and Hezbollah's foreign minister, and ultimately to Nasrallah himself. And it was impossible not to be impressed by Hezbollah as a movement. The people in Hezbollah were disciplined highly competent, articulate, and did not speak in a religious discourse, at least not to someone such as myself, a journalist from the West. And so it was possible to have, you know, stimulating and very interesting conversations with them about their understanding of Lebanese politics, the struggle with Israel, the region, and so forth. Now, I was never among those who romanticized Hezbollah. I did not regard it as a devilish terrorist group, which is how it had been portrayed in the West. But I also understood that Hezbollah is an Islamist movement and that it is, in spite of all of its claims to the contrary, very much a group that represents the Shia. Of Lebanon and that has hegemonized the Shia community. It is not, uh, even though Hezbollah began with this communique denouncing the sectarian system, Hezbollah proved to be extremely effective at exploiting the sectarian system and at ensuring power for a group that had been oppressed, that had been treated with contempt by both uh, Sunnis and Christians in Lebanon. So I didn't have a lot of illusions about Hezbollah. However, I did notice, of course, when I was traveling there, that there were people on the left, Pan-Arabists and Marxists, who wanted to believe that Hezbollah was, was gravitating towards a kind of left analysis of regional politics, and that uh, Hezbollah was undergoing you know, what some called Lebanonization, that it was no longer really you know, a weapon of Iran, that it was a, an autonomous, a relatively autonomous grouping that might even be said to be a kind of progressive social movement, albeit with some religious trappings. Some, of course, simply appreciated the fact that Hezbollah had been effective in ways that the PLO had never been in driving the Israelis out of southern Lebanon. I mean, you know, you know success is its own, you know, best advertisement. I think that, and I think there was a, a desire to attach oneself to a group that had finally won and to a group that had, in a, that had in some ways beat the Israelis at their own game. I mean, Hezbollah is like a, you know, they, they engage in a kind, almost a mimicry of Israel. 
You know, they they study the Israelis. They they know Hebrew. You know, they're they fly their own drones. They're yeah, they are brilliant military nerds. I mean, Hezbollah and Israel are you know, <laughs> I mean, in a weird way, they have a lot in common. You know, the 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 Palestinian movement was always more democratic and fractious and operatic, and and you know, there was room for all these different groups: the PFLP, the DFLP, the you know, the Fatah, I mean, with Hezbollah, no, it's a unified movement. I mean, it's, it's, it's an Islamist movement run along Leninist lines. And, you know, we shouldn't forget that intellectuals are often, are very impressionable. And I often find that, that a little bit of power can be very intoxicating. And so, I mean, in the States, you have intellectuals who love to imagine that they have some kind of influence on decision makers here. And I think for once, you know, leftist intellectuals, thought, oh, maybe, maybe these are our guys. Maybe, maybe a conversation with them would be productive. I think it's, I do think that, I do think that it has something to do with the aphrodisiac of power too. I don't really think it's the anti-Orientalist prism that, that explains it. I think, you know, there's also, you know, I think also, you know, what we find with the embrace of Hezbollah is the first early stirrings of what later comes to be called campism. So because Hezbollah is attached to the, quote, axis of resistance, and because it is, you know, objectively an enemy of the Israelis and of the Americans, that perhaps it's actually really a good thing, you know? And so, but of course, that proposition, I think, um, that argument gets severely tested when Hezbollah goes from being a very efficient an impressive insurgency against the Israeli occupation to being an efficient and disturbing counterinsurgency in Syria during the uprising against Assad. Now, there is an argument that from its own vantage point, its own sense of its interests, Hezbollah was very successful in Syria. They took a lot of criticism for it, but they were able to secure their own interests. But we shouldn't, we shouldn't lie to ourselves. Those are not the interests of people who, you know, support a more progressive, secular, democratic Middle Eastern politics. They're, they're not. That's not what Hezbollah is about. They've never been about that. And yes, there was an overlap of interests when Hezbollah undertook resistance against the Israelis, but they used that victory to serve their own agenda. And I think it's important to have a cold, realistic understanding of what the movement has been. Do you see then something of a parallel between the romanticization of Hezbollah on parts of the left with the earlier romanticization of the Arab nationalism of someone like Nasser, who, of course, as well as confronting Israel, was also you know, engaged in jailing Egyptian communists and, 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 and so on? No, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that... Um, I think, and, fr- and frankly, you know, Nasrallah was was much more effective than Nasser ever was. I mean, Nasser, you know, experienced the the great Naksa, the the setback in 1967 when he confronted the Israelis, and the result, of course, is, is Israel's uh, occupation. And and you know, what's more, Nasrallah has never really suffered a major setback of that order. I think also to some extent, uh, Nasrallah is a kind of a Fidel-like figure. And his relationship, as I was recently reminded by the writer Amin Malouf, his relationship to the Iranians is not unlike Castro's relationship to the Soviets. Nasrallah is, in some ways, an independent actor. 
his views count heavily with people in Tehran. He is, uh, you know, he, he started out as, um, as a kind of asset of the Iranians, but I think that, um, the relationship has become increasingly equal over time because he has amassed a lot of, of, of um, credibility and has shown himself to be a person of not just charisma, but effectiveness. And so just as Castro was able to take certain decisions in defiance of the Soviets, I mean, for example, his whole you know campaign in Southern Africa, so Nasrallah has made decisions with some degree, I suspect, of independence from, from the Iranians. So yes, I think that there are parallels between the Nasserist enthusiasms of the left in the 60s and the attraction to Nasrallah. And of course, you know, one also has to remember, in the case of Nasrallah, that he is, he's a very good speaker. He has the gift of the word. I think that that served him very well in the Arab world. There was a sense that he's the only person who, who isn't lying to us. I don't think that he still has that standing in large part because of Syria and also because of Hezbollah's very controversial position within Lebanon. You know, it's control of the airports and the way that it has, it has exploited and dominated the political system. But in 2006, he was at the height of his popularity, and it was not just among the Shia. In the chapter of the book on Edward Said, you describe how he was drawn to writers whose values were in many cases quite contrary to his own, such as the novelist Joseph Conrad and the author and satirist Jonathan Swift. And there you point to Saeed's comment that writers of the political right can be, as he put it, untimely anxious witnesses to the dominant currents of their time. And it seems clear from your work that that's a perspective you've very much taken on board yourself. So for instance, you have chapters in the book on two writers in particular who would widely be considered pretty reactionary in their politics, the French novelist Michel Welbeck and Faroud Ajami, the Lebanese-born American analyst of the Middle East who became something of an apologist for US imperialism in the region. Now, in the case of Welbeck, reading the chapter, I was reminded of reading him myself in my early 20s, and in particular, his 2005 novel, The Possibility of an Island, which I think at the time, being pretty ignorant of Welbeck's politics, I saw in part as a critique of capitalism and, and the way in which sexual relationships could be subsumed under the logic of the market. And even today, it seems quite prophetic, I think, in articulating a perspective very much akin to the view one hears from, uh, you know, so-called incels. <laughs> but I can recall that after Welbeck made a number of very Islamophobic remarks, which he became notorious for, it quickly became clear to me that he was the kind of writer who it wasn't, you know, really the done thing to, to admire if you on the left. And I did stop reading him, which I now think is perhaps a bit of a pity. And I, fe I felt this more having read your review of his 2015 book, Submission. Because as you argue, for all his appalling politics, he can often write quite acutely about Europe's, you know, sort of spiritual malaise. And on the novel that you write about in the book, Submission, that book was very much received at the time as a kind of Islamophobic polemic. But you argue that, in fact, Welbeck's relationship towards Islam is rather more complex than one might expect given his public pronouncements, and that the book even betrayed a certain degree of admiration for Islam, albeit for fundamentally reactionary reasons. Can you talk a bit about how you found the novel and, and how your view of it perhaps contrasted with that of other readers and reviewers? That's a very good question. 
You're certainly right, Alex, that I share Saeed's fascination with writers whose views I may consider in other ways quite repugnant. You know, I was reading uh, something by, it was a journal by Camus the other day, and he remarked somewhere that, you know, really great writers are, in the case of really great writers, the books are greater than, than the people who write them. And that's why I do draw a distinction between some of Welbeck's fiction and Welbeck himself. I don't think there's much, I don't think there's really room for a debate about Welbeck's hideous comments about Islam. Uh, you know, it, it also happens to be the case that he's made contrary remarks about, you know, reading the, the Quran and finding it to be much more congenial than, than he imagined. I don't think that Welbeck is someone who holds strong or interesting views on almost anything. I don't. I don't think his views are interesting. I think that he probably is, you know, a casually racist and Islamophobic man who would be an incel were it not for his enormous fame, which probably you know, uh, provides him with greater opportunities than he would otherwise have. But the fiction is something else entirely, I think. I don't think that the critique of the marketization of sexual relations, even if it is reminiscent of the diatribes of these murderous incels, can be reduced to that. He's capturing something that is a part of the general environment around sexual practices. I mean, you know, we do have dating sites, for example. We have shows about, um, to, about matchmaking. I mean, to imagine that the, that there's this impregnable fortress that protects sexuality and love from the, from the assault of the market is to, is to, is to suffer an illusion. I mean, it's very much a part and it always has been. It always has been. I mean, marriage, marriage itself was an economic relation. And for some people, it still is. So I don't think that, um, I think Welbeck's uh, critique is actually, uh, can be quite penetrating. Sorry for the word. And, um, uh, very amusing. I mean, uh, if, I don't know whether you've read the elementary particles, but it's quite a brilliant novel. And so is the map and the territory. Now, submission, submission happened to be published just at the time of the uh, of the Charlie Hebdo attack. And so I think it came out days after the attack. And so it was widely received as the apocalyptic warning about an Islamization of France. But if you if you actually read the book, and I mean read it, not read reviews and not reduce the book to a scattering of remarks by Welbeck himself on the subject of Islam, what you find is that in this novel, the sexually depressed hero, who is a, a scholar of Wiesmann and who is facing the rise of this uh, moderate Islamic party led by a Tunisian political leader, French-Tunisian political leader is the son of a pharmacist. What you find is that, is that the hero begins to contemplate not just a future, but in some ways a better future under Islamic governance. And I think that there are a number of things going on in this book. I mean, one thing, of course, on the surface 
is that the hero is afraid that he will no longer have sexual opportunities now that his uh, Jewish girlfriend has left him for Israel, fearing that France will see a wave of anti-Semitism with this new uh, Muslim leader in charge. But what Islam appears to offer him, and there's a wonderful and very entertaining monologue by a convert to Islam, what it appears to offer him is, for him, satisfying polygamous lifestyle. In other words, what he admires and appreciates in Islam is is patriarchy. Now, is this a fair representation of Islam? No. Maybe an, an element, but as a whole, certainly not. Is it influenced by his cartoonish views on Islam? Certainly. But is it a warning about what will happen to France if France undergoes Islamization? I don't think you can say that it is. And I think that to some extent, this book falls into the category of French books that have used the question of Islam to reflect on the decadence or decline of France itself. Because the, the, the main object of critique in this book, it's not Islam, it's France. You know, I mean, I think he's much more interested in the state of France than he is in the state of Islam. So I think you can talk about the repellent nature of Welbeck's views and have a very clear-eyed understanding of who Welbeck is, and at the same time see that he's doing something that is that is interesting and suggestive in this book, which is also a very perceptive and funny commentary on France today and on what he sees as lassitude and decadence and cowardice of the French political class. And do you think that writers who we might see as reactionary or on the political right, do you think they can sometimes be more acute than leftist writers? And if so, why do you think so? I think that's sometimes the case. Yes, I think that's probably been the case for that's probably been the case for a very long time. I mean, I remember that um, the novelist whom uh, Georg Lukács, the great Hungarian Marxist literary critic, regarded as the greatest chronicler of capitalism was Balzac. Balzac was was not on the left. On the contrary, he was on the right. But Lukács credited him with being able to represent and express what Lukács understood to be the totality of capitalist socialist relations. And also, I think, although I don't think Lukács actually comments on this, there is this delicious irreverence in Balzac and a feeling for just the corruption, mendaciousness, and brutal ambition of French literary life, of, of, um, of, of journalism in a novel like uh, Lost Illusions. And I'm not saying this is true of, of certainly of all writers on the left. It's not. There, are, there have been really great writers on the radical left. I mean, one of them is Garcia Marquez, who, of course, was also had a very close relationship to someone who was on the left, but not particularly democratic, Fidel Castro. Uh, there have been many others, and some of whom I write about in this book, uh, Richard Wright being a, a very good example, someone who came out of the Communist Party. But I do think that it's often been the case that writers who one might describe as right-wing libertarians or conservative libertarians who tend more towards towards cynicism and who do not harbor 
very great hopes for the future and who do not imagine that their work is advancing a project for the future. They're not tempted to be didactic, I suppose. They, 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 no, they, I think that they, they, they often have, they can often be very acute in describing the present without blinders. So yes, I think there's, there's some truth to that. And I think in some ways, Naipaul, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not excusing at all some of the really terrible racism in some of his later fiction in particular. He's, he would be an example of this as well. You'll notice too that some of the, you know, some of the great novelists who have, have started out on the left and who have understood their fiction to have a strong, radical or didactic project. Richard Wright, of course, is the example that comes to mind in the book, have eventually been forced to break free of the political movements that gave them a platform. I mean, I, I think that when I wrote the essay on Richard Wright, I, you know, was forced to, to think about the relationship to the, that he had to the Communist Party, which many liberal critics had tended to see just as an encumbrance that he had to break free of. And that's ultimately not my conclusion. I mean, he does have to leave the Communist Party at a certain point. And his reasons for leaving the Communist Party are not the ones that, that necessarily leap to mind. I mean, he, he didn't leave the party simply because of, of an objection to Stalinism. He actually, he left the party for reasons having to do with the, um, uh, the party's support for um, entrance into the Second World War, and also because the Communist Party began to downplay its struggles against racism in adherence to the uh, the American war effort. This is when the U.S. military was still racially segregated. Exactly, right? exactly. Um, those were his reasons. But so he had to leave. But the party was crucial to his formation. As a writer, it was in the John Reed Club that Richard Wright was reading people like Dreiser, that he was discovering writers like Dostoevsky. The party helped to form him. Eventually, he became kind of larger than the party itself. I mean, and, and, and had to go off on his own. And we see the beginnings of that schism, uh, certainly in Native Son. And the party had always had difficulties with Wright's fiction, because Wright was too good of a writer to simply write in service of a, of a political dogma. But, you know, my point here is that the relationship between a writer and a political movement is not really straightforward. I'm not arguing that independence alone is a condition for artistic freedom, because in the case of Richard Wright, and also in the case of Edward Said, allegiance to a movement can offer a lot for a while. I happen to think that that the the writing that uh, Edward Said produced after his break with Arafat in ninety three or ninety four is exceptional and is overlooked and deserving of, of of more study. But there's no question in my mind that that Said also got a lot from that relationship to the PLO that it opened a world for him that would not otherwise have been so accessible. So one of the through lines of the book seems to be the way in which traumatic early experiences can be the starting point for creativity. For instance, your chapter on Jacques Derrida discusses his childhood in French Algeria and the peculiar position of Algeria's Jewish population during French colonial rule, when despite experiencing a great deal of prejudice, 
they were, unlike the Arab or Berber populations, accorded the same kind of rights as the French settlers, the so-called Pierre Noirs, but that after the fall of France in World War II, the collaborationist Vichy regime applied its anti-Semitic laws in Algeria, and that led to Derrida being excluded from school, an experience which he describes as really foundational to his work. Elsewhere in the book, you describe the appalling racism that author Richard Wright, who you've mentioned, and, and his relatives experienced in the American South in the early 20th century. And you also write about Chester Himes, another black American author whose brother suffered a terrible injury while performing a school science experiment and was blinded after the hospital he was taken to refused him treatment due to the Jim Crow laws of the time. Could you talk a little bit about the importance of early experiences of suffering to the development of these writers and how trauma, rather than solely being debilitating, can be made productive use of, but also why being victimised, in your view, very much does not confer sainthood upon people? Yeah, that's true. That is, that, that's, no, that's very much a theme in the book. I'm often returning to a remark that Jean Genet makes in a wonderful essay that he published about his friend, the sculptor Giacometti. And he says that, that every work of art revolves around a wound. Now, I don't think that's always true, of course, but it's not infrequently true that a work of art or an intellectual project can be traced back to some early experience that is painful or even traumatic to use the the language that is so you know so in vogue today and that has somehow by its violence by its shock transformed that person's understanding of the world turned their world upside down that was certainly uh, the case with derrida you know derrida described being kicked out of school when the vichy laws were applied as the earthquake of his life. And, but what I find fascinating about Derrida is the way that he incorporates his understanding of that episode into his intellectual work. I'm not saying that all of his intellectual work rests on that trauma. Certainly not. I mean, this is, this is not trauma literature at all. But it fascinates me, for example, that so much of Derrida's work is about this resistance to the binary, right? This exposure of the binary as, as being part of, you know, what he, you know, variously calls Western metaphysics or white mythologies, et cetera, et cetera. And that we probably now today more often describe as, you know, essentialist thinking. And so, you know, that experience that he had was one in which he grew up as a, as a Jew in Algeria. The Jews in Algeria had enjoyed French citizenship since the early 1870s with the Crémieux Decree. They had been Andigène. They had been natives like the Arabs and Berbers of Algeria. And now there was this divide. Now a chasm opened up between Muslim natives and Jewish natives who were no longer natives, who were made French. And yet, they still were not quite French, right? Because their citizenship could be stripped from them by the very country that the Jews of Algeria looked to as an emancipator, as a liberator. And so I do think that, the, well, the Jews did not fall into the binary native settler. 
They were somewhere in between. And so I don't think that the critique of binarism that becomes known as deconstruction is all about Algeria. But there's no question that the trauma that he experienced as a boy in Algeria and his self-understanding as a person who was French, Algerian, and Jewish led him on the path that resulted, you know, in the writings that we now call Deridian. And there were various moments in his career later on where he spoke about being a Jew from Algeria. He published a brilliant, very tortured and strange essay on his circumcision called Circumfession. And that's very much about his Algerian childhood. So, you know, my argument is not that trauma is an incitement to creativity. It's not that it is an inspiration, really. It's rather that artists and thinkers of originality have a way of taking some episode, some traumatic episode that has been formative and returning to it, rereading it, making meaning out of it. That's certainly the case in Richard Wright. What is Richard Wright's analysis of racism? Richard Wright's analysis of racism is that the most significant emotion for a black person in America, and again, he's writing about the period of segregation. He's, you know, Richard Wright dies in 1960. You know, he's, he dies before the passage of the Voting and Civil Rights Acts. Okay. The most important emotion for a black person is fear. It's fear based. Why is it fear-based? Why is it not a sense of anger over economic oppression or exclusion of various kinds? It's fear-based because Richard Wright grows up in the South and he hears of the so-called white death, you know, lynchings. These events, which he heard about, he knew people who were, were, were killed by white mobs. These stayed with Wright. You know, and fear is a profound emotion in all of Wright's fiction, mostly attached to race, but not always. So, you know, that's what I'm getting at. You know, it's really about the artistic transfiguration of a trauma. It's not an argument that trauma makes us good writers or good artists. I mean, that's probably, that's an idea that seems to have um, attracted a certain following today. It's not one that I subscribe to at all. It's, it's ultimately what, what you do with it, right? And it's also not the argument that that process of transfiguration makes one a good person or, or, or sort of heals you as a person. No, no, certainly. Well, you just mentioned the example of Chester Himes, and you know, Chester Himes is a writer for whom I have immense admiration. I, I describe him in that essay as uh, Black literature's one authentic nihilist, and I and I say that as a compliment. I think uh, Chester Himes's fiction is visceral and daring and and intensely visual and extremely powerful. And I, he also published. A group of memoirs, there are two books, the my Le uh, the quality of hurt in my life of absurdity that in my view are among the greatest memoirs written by American by an American writer. So my admiration is total. Having said that, I have to also say, and I'm very clear about it in this essay, that Chester Himes was in many ways a, a frightening human being. Chester Himes suffered immensely, and he also inflicted immense suffering. 
you know, it began arguably rather early in his life when he fell into crime. You know, Chester Himes was not from a working class or poor family, but he was from a middle class black family that suffered a, a terrible uh, disintegration in their prospects after the the accident that, that you just mentioned, uh, the blinding uh, of his brother. And he ends up, you know, leaving, leaving college and uh, becoming, becoming a criminal. I mean, not unlike uh, Malcolm X, actually. And he ends up serving time in prison where he has, uh, you know, uh, where he has an affair with a, with another prisoner, a male prisoner, which is another aspect of, of Himes' work that's quite interesting because although he was mostly with women, he also appears to have been uh, bisexual and, and never wrote more fervently of love than in the case of um, a novel where he described a love affair between between two men. Both both of them were white in the novel, but the, the novel is clearly clearly autobiographical. Now, Chester Himes, in his relationships with women, was was brutal. And he wrote about this brutality, and he even justified the brutality. And yet he also wrote with perceptiveness and incredible tenderness about his relationships with his lovers, especially his white lovers, because most of the women uh, Chester Himes was with, uh, certainly by the time he, he uh, went into exile in France, most of his lovers were white. His first wife was black, but few of his attachments were with, with black women. He was violent. He was unapologetic and at the same time, very honest. And I don't have a diagnosis. I can't explain why Chester Himes was as monstrous as he could be. I simply describe this behavior and his own justifications, but it's clear that the fact of having suffered, the fact of having been a victim of terrible racism in the States in no way turned Chester Himes into an angel when it came to his relations with women. And there's probably a case to be made that the violence that he suffered, the physical and emotional violence that he suffered as a black man, he turned outward and displaced onto the women in his life. And it is an ugly fact that those who suffer violent trauma are often susceptible to inflicting it on others. I mean, this is something that many, of course, many psychologists have written on. This is something that Franz Fanon wrote extensively about in The Wretched of the Earth, where he talked about the ways in which oppressed communities would commit violence against each other, channeling the violence that they had experienced from the oppressor onto one another. So I'm not introducing anything new here, but what I'm trying to do is to be lucid about it and to present as complete a portrait as I can of a writer, you know, I regard as one of the major American writers and one of the most insightful writers on race to see him in his full human complexity. And we are human. I mean, the awful things that we harbor are as much a part of us as our capacity for good. And I want to represent all of that. I mean, that's what good novelists do, you know? I mean, and and I think that, you know, I feel that I have the same responsibility as uh, when I'm writing nonfiction. So the book's epilogue has a very different subject to that of the preceding chapters, but it does relate to the theme of childhood pain that you've been talking about. 
And in the epilogue, you describe how you developed an interest in cooking and, and came very close to actually pursuing a career as a chef. Could you explain what made you include this chapter and, and how you see it as relating to the other parts of the book? Sure. Well, for one thing, uh, the chapter relates to the topic that we were just discussing, the question of trauma, because when I was young, when I was you know nine or 10 years old, I experienced some very unpleasant um, incidents of um, of anti-Semitism growing up in the suburbs of Western uh, Massachusetts. And uh, my reaction actually initially was to become violent. And then eventually, after having become violent with the uh, former friends of mine who had been throwing change on the floor and calling me Dirty Jew and so on, I stopped eating. Uh, they, they were also saying that I was fat. And so I became determined to lose weight and uh, began to hide food and, and developed an eating disorder that went on for some time. And my response to this eating disorder was ultimately to begin to cook. And I think that probably I was learning to cook as a way of establishing a more normal or healthier relationship to food and to my body. And so in a sense, I was aestheticizing food. I was intellectualizing food in order to make my peace with it. And so I became fascinated by by chefs, by the, the so-called new American cuisine that had been emerging in the 1970s and 80s and was associated with figures like Alice Waters and Jeremiah Tower and Wolfgang Puck. And I was also keenly following developments in France, especially the Nouvelle Cuisine and the emergence of intellectual chefs like Alain Sandrin and Joël Robuchon. And what ended up happening, though, is that while I did spend a great deal in the kitchen, while I did spend a great deal of time in the kitchen and work in restaurants in New York and France until I was about 16 years old, the long-term result was that I ended up forging a deeper and deeper relationship to the French language, to French culture, ultimately to French politics and intellectual life. And what's more, it was on a visit to France where I was doing a stage in a restaurant in Burgundy that I became aware of the Algerian question. I really knew very, I really knew next to nothing, but I overheard a conversation, a very racist conversation about Algerians slaughtering their lamb for, um, for Ramadan. And I knew enough about American racism, something that I was, you know, I was, was very, very conscious of to know that the laughter that I was hearing was a kind of enjoyment, a mutual enjoyment in, in uh, racist caricature and mockery. And I didn't immediately start to investigate the issue of Algeria, but I, I always remembered overhearing that conversation. It's, it sparked something. And so you could argue that this initial trauma led to a passion for French cooking and then led me on, oddly enough, on this path to become a writer and to take an interest both in France and Algeria. It's a twisted path. I'm not saying it's straightforward in any sense, but it's connected. And I, and I do think that to some extent, I transferred my passion for food to ideas and to writing. Food, cooking, that was my first intellectual commitment. My, my, my interest in food 
was an intellectual one as well, because while I was cooking and taking great pleasure in it and experimenting in the kitchen, I was also reading a tremendous amount on the history of food, on restaurants, on different chefs. I mean, it was an intellectual infatuation. And so it was my first commitment. And, and one of the subjects is this, of this book is how commitments are formed and how they fertilize the imagination of writers. And so I felt that this essay, which on its surface seems to have nothing to do with the writers and artists and filmmakers I describe in this book, actually helps to account for how this person came to write these essays. Yes, I mean, as you say, it's it, it's an interestingly sort of circuitous path because one might think that a young boy experiencing racism might then develop an interest in the question of race and, and that might at some point include the topic of race in France and Algeria and so on. But instead, there's this um, this detour through the culinary world. But I will say that my interest in race preceded that. Uh, I'll tell you something, and it's, it might seem to be... I, I My interest in race began very early. And uh, the reason is that my... My parents had had been very committed to civil rights. My mother ran a school, a community music school for disadvantaged children. Uh, my father had books like the autobiography of Malcolm X and Franz Fanon's writings and James Baldwin's writings in, in our bookshelves. And I also grew up, my neighbors were a black family. The father was one of the first black executives at a computer company. So they lived right near us. And the daughters of this couple became my babysitters when they were teenagers, before they went off to college. And they became my mentors in many ways about questions of race in the United States and also taught me a great deal about music, which, of course, is another subject that another subject that I've written extensively on. So I was deeply engaged in questions of race from a very early age. I mean, and this is the reason why, although I knew very little of French Algerian history, I could hear something in that laughter. I knew what it meant. I think because of my understanding of race in the States. So that had been a passion for me for some time. And it really is what led me into my first uh, forays into social justice work around questions of apartheid and Central America and so have you, I mean, the, and so on. I mean, the, this is why I have never been able to subscribe to a kind of class reductionist understanding of politics. I mean, I have great, I have a connection to a certain, you know, Marxist tradition, uh, thinkers like, uh, like Gramsci had had um, a big impact on me, but issues of race and colonization have always been kind of primordial for me. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast app you use. It really does help to bring in new listeners. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. I'll be back with the regular show soon. Thanks for listening. Thank you.